We want to turn this morning to consider God's Word from Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning. Romans chapter 5 under the heading of God's great love story. God's great love story from Romans 5, 6 through 11. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here ends the reading of God's Word this morning. A blessed congregation, one of the most popular types of stories are love stories. In our day and age, love is big business. One thing I found out in my studies this week is that Valentine's Day is estimated to be worth around $25.9 billion every year. The proof of this, that love is big business, is also seen in the countless blogs, movies, books, TV shows that never tire of the idea of love. As long as men and women have been married, there have been love stories. And the Bible is even full of many love stories. You only need to think back to Jacob laboring seven years for Rachel, and it says they seemed but a few days for the love he had for her. And our collective hearts swoon. Or how Ruth defied the cultural norms of her day to pursue Boaz, and then Boaz in love redeems her to be his wife. Or you think of Solomon, his romantic love for his bride in his song. As human beings, we are hardwired. We are created for love and created for companionship with other people. J.V. Fesco, a New Testament scholar, pointed this out to me, that in all our romantic media, the books, the TVs, the blogs, the movies, And even in the biblical stories, there is always an element of attraction, isn't there? There's always something, we know this if you think about it, that draws the characters to one another. His, we won't say devilishly, we'll say angelic good looks, drew her to him. Or her beauty. Or his quick-witted nature. Or her quirky lovable persona. 
It says in the Bible, Jacob admired Rachel's beauty. Boaz admired Ruth's virtue. Solomon said, Behold, you are fair, my love. Even in our love stories, there is something irresistible about the other person. But the Apostle Paul and the love story that he is going to talk about this morning in Romans 5 tells a different story. The love story that God has with His bride transcends all others. It goes beyond buying flowers and chocolate, a date night. It even goes beyond attraction. But it involves the greatest act of love, which is sacrifice. That the Lord Jesus, because of love, would sacrifice Himself to the bride. Even though there was nothing in her that attracted Him to her. There's nothing irresistible about the bride. But because of love, God sends His Son. Does Jesus come and redeem us? What makes God's love story great is that God loves the unlovable. That's our theme this morning. That God demonstrates His love by dying for the unlovable bride. Our points this morning are twofold. The ugly bride and her loving husband. And yes, I'm trying to be provocative there. And living in the husband's love. The ugly bride and her loving husband and living in the husband's love. So we turn this morning to the Apostle Paul's telling of God's great love story. And it's clear that the subject of our passage is love because if you look back in verse 5, that's what the Apostle Paul has just finished speaking about. He says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And there is a conjunction at the beginning of verse 6. That's what the word for is. It's a conjunction. Which means that he's not beginning a new thought, but he's continuing on with his prior thought in verse 5. And we notice right away that God's love story is different than our love's story. Because God's love is poured out and it's not lavished upon someone beautiful, someone attractive, or successful. But the opposite. Look with me at verse 6. The love of God is given to someone who is weak, ungodly. Verse 8, or sinful. In other words, the bride is ugly, spiritually speaking. She is not the one that people are writing romance books about. She is not the one starring in the latest rom-com. She is the one being passed over. But Paul says it's for her Jesus died. For her, He demonstrates His love. I want you to give your attention with me to verses 6-8 through 
which describe the bride in three different ways. It describes her as weak, it describes her as ungodly, and it describes her as sinful. But then it describes the husband also in three different ways. Notice it says Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died. And He demonstrates His love. You see, there's three truths about the bride and there's three truths about the groom. And in order to get the picture, we need both trios to understand. See, the first description that Paul uses to describe the bride, look with me at verse 6, is that she is weak. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. The Greek word asthene uh, can literally mean that she was sick. She was physically weak. And as human beings, we're quickly able to understand this. Our bodies can be physically weak. They falter and wear out. Our minds grow old and miscalculate numbers. We conflate events and forget facts. But the Apostle Paul is not saying that she's weak necessarily of body, but that she is weak in soul. That the bride is so weak that she can't stop succumbing to sin. And that's the second thing Paul says. Not only is she weak, but she's ungodly. That term means godless. The people who are ungodly are the ones who forget or ignore or scorn the God of Scripture. These are the first two truths about the bride. But the first truth about the husband is sandwiched in between. That at the right time, Christ came. And at the right time, Christ died for her. Think about it this morning. Somebody who is weak and ungodly, Christ loves. And He came. And He died for her. This is the greatest demonstration of love that can be accomplished. See, every once in a while, something will come on the news. Like an Olympic athlete marrying a paraplegic. And we say, wow, what an evidence of love. Somebody who's in peak physical condition loving someone who isn't. It's an evidence of love. We even have a whole book of the Bible where a pastor, Hosea, loves a prostitute. Someone of great moral character marries someone of poor moral character. And we say, wow, what an evidence of love. Paul is using the same illustration here to describe Christ. That He came and He died at the right time. And that term, right time, doesn't just mean He died on the right day, but it means that when the bride was the most weak, when she was the most godless, when she was the most ugly, Christ loved her. When Paul says Jesus came at the right time, 
Daniel Doriani, a pastor, points, it, points, points this out. When it says Jesus came at the right time, it's saying he also came for the wrong kind of people. That in our human minds, the greatest gifts should go to great people. Don't we think that? That the most beautiful woman should marry the most handsome man. Sometimes people say, how did a guy like him get a girl like her? You ever heard that? We think that beautiful people should be with beautiful people. We think that successful people should be with successful people. Who loves the weak? Who loves the unattractive? More to the point, who loves them so much that they would even be willing to die for them? To give the greatest gift for the weak and the unattractive. See, Paul knows this well. And in verse 7, he reminds us of something we all know instinctively. You see, most people, I think, would be willing to risk their lives for the innocent. Say, for example, there's a burning building, and you know that there is an innocent child trapped within it. I feel like I know most of you that you would go in there and you would try to rescue that innocent child, right? That's what Paul's saying. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. We would go in and try to save the innocent. Try to save the righteous. But let's change the scenario. What if the person trapped in the building isn't righteous? Isn't innocent? Isn't beautiful, attractive, and successful? What if it's a death row convict? What if that person is a prostitute? Strung out on drugs? A person's your enemy. Still willing to risk your life for them? Further complicating it, would you be willing to exchange your innocent child to take the place of the convict? the prostitute, the enemy. Here's Paul's point. No one in their right mind does this. But it is the nature of God's love for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That God gave His Son, His innocent, perfect, righteous Son, to save weak, ungodly, and sinful people. And that's the bride's third description. She's not only weak and ungodly, but she's sinful. She transgresses God's law and even exploits Him. Let's pause for a moment here this morning. Consider those three descriptions of the bride. 
She's weak, morally speaking. She's ungodly. That she doesn't know God. She is sinful. She transgresses the law and exploits God. Let's read verse 8 again. Look at, look at your Bibles with me, if you will. But God shows His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is not just describing a love story. He's describing our love story. And who are we in this story? Are we the knight in shining armor? No. Paul is describing us and he says there's no element of beauty. There's no attractive. At the risk of being too provocative this morning, he says that the bride of Christ is even ugly. We are not Rachel. We are Leah. We are Gomer. But look what Paul says in verse 8. We are ugly but loved. Christ, God, shows His love for us. Congregation, this morning you may look into the mirror and you may see your spiritual ugliness. You might feel your powerlessness, your godlessness, your sinfulness, and you might say, no one can love someone as ugly as me. No one can love someone as sinful as me. I'm so broken, so hurt, so powerless, but Paul says, God does. Jesus said it this way, there is no greater love than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. Yet Christ did more than even this because He doesn't just lay down His life for His friends, He lays down His life for His enemies. People not worthy of love in the perspective of the world. But He died for us. I want you to turn with me if you have a Bible to Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Because those, that term, died for us, is, what, is in what we call the present tense. Meaning it's, or excuse me, it's in the, yeah, I believe it's in the present tense. It's a past event with personal results. It's a personal language. Galatians 2 verse 20 puts it this way, when He died for us, He shows us that He loved me and gave Himself for me. Are you seeing what Paul is saying here? It's you who he's describing. It's me who he's describing. But, not just describing us as ugly, but describing us as loved. Loved by Jesus Christ. Before we move on, I want you to consider also this morning that the love of Christ makes 
unlovable people lovable. Remember, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus loved us and gave Himself for us so that He might sanctify us and cleanse us through the washing of the water of the Word so that He might present us before the Father as a glorious bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. That when the bride doesn't know Christ, she's weak, ungodly, and sinful. But through His love, He makes us beautiful. Spiritual ugliness removed in Christ. He has clothed us in beauty, in splendor, in righteousness. He beautifies you. In his blood. See, one of the more comforting passages when we consider this Romans 5 teaching from the prophet Isaiah, the church of the Old Testament says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and the bride adorns herself with jewels. That in the love of the groom, the bride is made beautiful before him. Congregation, you are loved in Christ. Do you know that? As ugly as our sins can sometimes be, Paul will rejoice in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from His love. You are loved in Christ. So that word shows or demonstrates in verse 8 proves to us every day that God's love is still true. That when we doubt God's love, we have the privilege of opening up His Word and considering and meditating on the cross of Jesus Christ. Every day, He shows us His love. When we read the Word and remember, yes, I am a sinner, but Jesus loves a sinner such as me. Remember also a word of application that Jesus told His disciples that we need to love like He loved. So do we only love the beautiful? The successful? The attractive? Jesus says if you only love people like you, you're no better than the tax collectors. That's what they do. But it is quite another thing to demonstrate love towards our enemies. If Christ loved us, then we need to be willing to love others too. Even the people we might think are unlovable. Now just like when you got married, if the Lord gave you the privilege of a spouse, it changed you. And then you were called to live in the benefits of your husband or your wife every day. 
So we are called to live in Christ's love. That's our second point. Living in the husband's love. You see, if God loves us so that He would send the Savior to die for us while we were still sinners, to justify us by His blood, is there anything He can't do? Is there anything the Father will withhold from you? That's Paul's point. That God was compelled by love to justify you. It's the greatest thing imaginable. There's nothing He will hold back from you now. See, the cross is the greatest thing that has happened in human history. That God would love so much to die for you. You don't have to be a Christian to even understand that. How many people don't know Christ but wear a cross around their neck? We recognize the cross is a monumental moment. It's a demonstration of love in its purest form. But sometimes, ideas can be in our head, the truthfulness of the cross, without reaching our hearts, can't it? Remember the theme of Romans 5. Justification changes things. That the love, the grace, and the patience of God that is poured out to us in Christ should change us. And so look with me these last few verses. That Christ's love should lead us to an assurance. Verses 9 and 10 say, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? He's saying if God did something great for you, the greatest thing ever for you, He won't hold back anything anymore. Working on my Latin, this is called a fortiori. The logic is this. If somebody does something hard for you, Won't they do something easy for you when you ask them? For example, young boys and girls here this morning, if mom cooks you an amazing meal on your birthday, I'm pretty sure she'll get you a glass of water when you ask for it. Or if a couple gets married and you have a wonderful wedding ceremony and a wonderful uh, honeymoon, will not the husband be willing to give his wife a back massage? What's the answer? Of course. If somebody does something great for you, surely they'll do something comparatively easy for you. Paul says it's the same with your heavenly Father. If He was willing to send Christ on this earth to die for you, to give you peace through His death, the greatest gift ever, He won't withhold anything else. God would send Jesus to the cross, then will He turn you away at the gates of heaven? No, Paul says. We have peace with God through the death of Christ. He won't withhold anything 
theologically, this is called final salvation. It's referring to that moment when you stand before the Lord. When you stand before the Lord, what will He say? And Paul is saying in Christ, God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That for those who are trusting in the cross of Christ, who are justified by His blood, as if they had never sinned or been a sinner, they should have assurance that they will be finally saved on that last day. That God is just following through on His love for them in Christ. Paul is saying, you are saved now when you trust in Christ, and you're saved forever when you trust in Christ. If God has done the difficult thing of justifying us in Christ, how much more can He do this easy thing by saving us from His wrath? Welcoming us into His presence. Standing before Him in grace. You are saved today. You are saved tomorrow. You are saved forever. Because Christ died for sinners in His love. My friends, today is a day of celebration in the death of Christ as we come and commemorate His death at the communion table. When we come to this table, the form will remind us there's no other thing we need to cling to than the cross of Christ. God has done the greatest thing for us. Will He not surely also feed us at His table? And so we should rejoice. He has loved us. He assures us of this love when He demonstrates it in the cross. And so we should worship Him. Look what Paul says in verse 11. He says, More than that, we also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received reconciliation, This should prompt praise and joy and holy awe in us. In fact, this I think is what Paul says is the apex of his argument. Notice how many times in these last few verses Paul has said the word more. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. If while we were enemies we were reconciled to to God by the death of, the, of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, He's heightening, He's elevating, raising His argument. Look at the privileges. You have His love. You have assurance. And the highest privilege is that you know God and you can worship Him now. You can be in His presence. You can stand before Him. You can praise His name. Rejoice in Him. More, more, more in Christ. Celebrate His love. Rejoice in His love. That the great God of heaven would love you and love me. My dear friends, this is God's great love story. 
And we may not be the beautiful, captivating bride that we thought we were. Yet despite the ugliness of sin, Christ loved us so much that He would die for you and for me. If God is willing to save us by His death, how much more is He willing to give us everything we need in life? The Spirit is sanctifying us. Purifying us. Glorifying us. Until that day of final salvation we will stand before Him and we won't be an ugly bride any longer. But in that last day, we will be finally transformed. Totally beautiful. To praise our King. Today. Tomorrow. And forever. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we give You thanks for this day that You have told us about our true spiritual condition. Not worthy of Your love, but yet still recipients of Your love in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, for Your many blessings unto us and how You would love us so that You would even purify us in Your death. And so we pray, God, that this truth would be ours, that we would be reminded, Lord, this morning, that we are ugly no longer in Jesus, but washed and purified in Him. Thank You for Your love, which is so real and so sure to us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.